He was staring into the night that had swallowed the saucer. He couldn't sleep that night. The army installed the wizards in a large tent and issued each of them a cot and a sleeping bag. Lying on his cot in the darkness, he lay listening to the whisper of the wind, thinking about the saucer. The existence of the saucer required each person who saw it to throw out the preconceptions of a lifetime. Somewhere out there, in the vast nothingness of space, somewhere far away in space and time, there were other intelligent creatures. They had built this saucer, and it was now here, on Earth. Newton Chadwick was a child of his place and time, and he didn't know what to make of it. Sure, he had read his share of science fiction as a youngster, and that was precisely what it was. Fiction. The saucer changed everything. Everything. The saucer was parked in a large hangar at an unused airbase in the desert wastes. The wizards rode for an hour on the bus to get there. One of the officers handed out a special badge to each man, who was required to wear it on a chain around his neck, as if it were a set of dog tags. As usual, Chadwick found himself at the end of the line. He ground his teeth and waited his turn. There it was, sitting under the lights on its legs, apparently undamaged by the rough handling it had received. They found the entry hatch on the belly of the saucer quickly enough. As the rest of the group fondled the machine and examined the rocket nozzles and tried to see through the canopy into the dark interior, three of them worked on getting the hatch open. Twenty minutes later, they were still at it. They would have spent the day staring at the mechanism if one of them had not kept his hand on it for about ten seconds, then tried to manipulate it. Now it opened. It's sensitive to heat, they cried, as they gathered on hands and knees under the saucer. As they excitedly discussed how this minor miracle might be physically accomplished, Newton Chadwick wriggled between them and slithered up through the hatch. The interior was dark, lit only by the overhead lights from the interior of the hangar that penetrated the canopy, and it was empty of the creatures, living or dead, who had flown the saucer. A much-relieved Newton Chadwick began a hasty inspection. There were seats equipped with seat belts. Humans, Chadwick concluded, or humanoids, human-like creatures. Controls, a pilot seat, white panels where the instrument should be, pedals for the pilot, a stick on the right and left, and a headband, much like an Indian's headband that he and his friends had worn in play not too many years ago. He picked up the band and inspected it. As he did so, several of his colleagues worked up the courage to join him in the saucer's interior. I see you're still alive, Chenwick, the senior man said acidly. He's our mine canary, the second man announced. If there are horrible bacteria in here to smite us, at least we have five minutes. Chadwick couldn't resist. He coughed, grabbed his throat, and made a retching sound. The older scientists scurried back out of the hatch. Newton donned the headband. Well, the saucer people apparently had heads about the same size as his. He looked around on the panel for something to make the headband do something. Are you alive in there, Chadwick? I feel quite feverish, sir. Vision fading, coming and going. Get a doctor, quickly. The call was repeated, which caused the soldiers to scurry about. Chadwick ignored the commotion. He was too busy pulling and pushing the half-dozen knobs and levers on the instrument panel. The entire panel came to life when he pulled out one of the red knobs. He stared at the white panels, which changed colors and became almost transparent. Symbols appeared, and he saw into the heart of the machine. 
The headband. My God. He tried to organize his thoughts and saw the presentations on the panels before him change as fast as thought. His mind galloped on. How does the saucer work? Where did it come from? Who flew it? He got immediate answers to these questions, although he didn't fully comprehend the information he saw. What in hell are you doing in there, Chadwick? Now the senior man crawled in. Before he could see the displays, Chadwick pushed the red power button in. The panels turned white, and the humming in the compartment behind him died. Jesus Christ, are you running this machine? What in hell do you think you're doing? Trying to find out what makes it go, Chadwick answered curtly, and stuffing the headband into his pocket, turned around to study the back wall of the cockpit, which must provide access to the machinery he had heard. The senior man was joined by four of his colleagues, and they were instantly lost in a discussion of the wondrous things they saw about them. Newton Chadwick found the latches to the machinery compartment hatch, figured out how they worked, and scuttled through. He closed the hatch behind him. The scientists, standing shoulder to shoulder in the cockpit, paid no attention. At ten o'clock that evening, the senior man trekked through the Nevada night to the radio tent. There he wrote the report to Washington. He handed it to the radio clerk to encode. This is the message the encryption clerk read. Team spent day examining the flying saucer, which appears to be a spaceship manufactured upon another planet, undoubtedly in another solar system, by a highly advanced civilization using industrial processes unknown on Earth. Appears to be powered by some form of atomic energy. No weapons found. Recommend that extensive, thorough examination continue on a semi-permanent basis. Knowledge to be gained will revolutionize every scientific field. The encryption clerk whistled in amazement and went to work with the codebook. In the darkness outside the sleeping tent, Newton Chadwick sat in the sand and fingered the headband he had borrowed from the saucer. This headband, Newton believed, was the way the pilot of the saucer communicated with the electronic brain of the machine. That electronic brain was the heart of the saucer. True, there was a nuclear reactor that used heat in a strange electrolysis process to crack water into its constituent parts. The hydrogen was then burned in the rockets. And there was a huge ring around the bottom of the ship that Newton suspected was used to modulate the planet's gravitational field in some manner. Yet the crown jewel of the saucer was the artificial brain that talked to his brain through this headband. This headband proved that the crew of the saucer had brains very similar to ours. And there was more. Inside that device, Newton suspected, was some record of the scientific and technical knowledge that the saucer's makers had used to build it. This record was the library housing the accumulated knowledge of an advanced civilization, and it was there for the man with the wit and brains to mine it. These older men, scientists and engineers, he had listened carefully to their comments all evening. They still didn't understand the significance of the electronic brain, nor the headband. One reason was that they had not powered up the saucer. The other was that Newton had pocketed every headband he found, all four of them. Given enough time, they would get a glimmer of the truth. They certainly weren't fools, even if they were conventional thinkers. Actually, there were at least three electronic brains that Newton had found. They weighed about eight pounds each and were no larger than a shoebox. He was sitting there speculating about how they might work when a soldier drove up in a jeep and rushed into the tent. In a few moments, he heard the senior man swear a foul oath. Damnation! 
Washington refuses to allow further access to the saucer. We're to return to Florida tomorrow. Newton Chadwick leaped to his feet. He stuffed the headband into a pocket. There was a jeep parked next to the one the soldier had just driven up. Chadwick walked over and looked in the ignition. The key was there. He hopped in, started the engine, popped the clutch, and fed gas. It wasn't until after breakfast that anyone missed young Chadwick. A search was mounted, and by mid-morning it was learned that he visited the saucer about two that morning. He had displayed his badge and was admitted by the sentries, who had not been told to deny entry to badge holders. Chadwick was inside for only thirty minutes, then drove away in an army jeep. Despite the protests of the senior scientist, the army officer in charge sealed the saucer and refused to allow further entry, so no one knew what Chadwick had done inside it, if anything. Neither Chadwick nor the jeep could be found. Back in Florida, the scientists who had visited the saucer were debriefed by FBI agents. They would be prosecuted, they were told, if they ever discussed the existence of the saucer or anything they had learned about it. As the years slipped past, the saucer they had seen in the Nevada desert sat undisturbed in its sealed hangar. October 2004, Missouri The sleek little plane zipped in low and fast, dropping below the treetops as it flew along the runway just a few feet above the ground. Then the nose pointed skyward, and the plane rolled swiftly around its horizontal axis, once, twice, three times. Rip Cantrell was the pilot. The plane was an extra 300L, a two-place aerobatic plane with two seats arranged in tandem. The pilot sat in the rear seat. Today.